0: Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowery. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
2: And this is Phil Stevens. I'm back. Sorry I was gone. I was in Vegas and then California and all over the place. I'm traveling like Mike. Anyways, uh, power <laughs> left owner of Strength Guild, uh, strength coach, yada, 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 yada.
3: Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, creator of Flex Diet, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, and... Bunch of other stuff, and it's my last day in South Padre, Texas today, so hopefully it's windy and I can kiteboard.
4: Right on. What's up? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mike is Rattel. I used to be a professor, and now I am just an explorer, man. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm the chief sports scientist at Renaissance Periodization I do all kinds of stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into later, Uh, but uh, for now, I'm just happy to be here today.
3: Cool. Thanks for being on. Okay, let's
0: let's start with a mail question that I promised everyone about last week. We needed Phil really to do this here uh, because it's just, it's perfectly up his alley. This is from Max. He says, "Uh, hello, my name is Max. I've been listening to Iron Radio for about a year now. I'm 28 years old. I was diagnosed with arthritis about six months ago. My doctor told me that I have joint degeneration in my mid and lower spine as well as my hips. Uh, Regardless of the diagnoses, I still want to compete in powerlifting, essentially. Um, I'm looking to compete in the next couple of months, uh, definitely by the end of March 2019. I am currently 180 pounds in body weight. I have a 365 one rep max in the bench, a 405 squat, and a 365 deadlift. Uh, do you guys have any pointers on pushing my maxes over the next couple of months? I have a very solid routine, but I feel like I have hit a brick wall. My goal is to get a 4.05 raw bench by the end of December. And again, he's at 3.65 now. Uh, to get my squat and deads up to 4.95 in the same time frame. And again, he's um, he's in that upper threes to four range right now. And he wants 4.95 by the end of December. Um Let's see. I've been using 531 method to really push my strength over the edge. My diet is solid. My supplementation is solid. My body is very receptive to changes. I feel like I'm in a perfect position to keep a low body weight but still push incredible weights regardless of my disability. Any advice you guys have would be greatly appreciated. Any resources you could refer me to will be used 110%. Thank you, Max. Uh, what do you think, Phil? Yeah.
2: The thing that jumps out to me is we need to add 265 pounds to your total in a month while keeping you at the same body weight or lower.
0: Woo-hoo.
2: We have problems.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's, that's a tall order. Yeah.
2: Um, now uh, that's that's next. To, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say it's impossible because weird things happen, but that's next to impossible. Um, uh, let's address the arthritis. I mean, I think it's doable. I deal with clients that have, I have a client that almost has the exact thing he's dealing with right now, and you just have to adjust your training. I can say with the arthritis and things like that, you're going to have to, especially in the spine, you're going to have to concentrate on every rep being perfect. Um, For us, when we do that, when we're talking volume, I keep volume in lower rep sets. So we get volume across more sets than we do instead of a set with a bunch of volume because what you tend to see is, you know, and if we're doing 10 sets of two instead of two sets of 10, we can make those 10 sets of two look perfect whereas there's a much bigger case of like rep 8 or 9 or 10 starting to not look so perfect. Um and you have no margin for error with an arthritic spine. So um I would control your uh, control your volume and make sure everything's perfect as far as reps go. You'll have to do that more so than um, everybody should do that, but uh you more so because of what you're battling. Um mm-hmm. And volume on those joints that are already just wore out. So yeah. um, that's like me with my hip. I only have – I know like I go into squat today. I have about 10 heaviest reps total from about 80% up, and that's all I'm going to have for the day with my hip. Oh, yeah. So I I have to make all those count. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And that's probably something you're going to have to deal with too um, because after that, things just start to ache um, in a way that's, that's just not helping me. So you'll have to be very, very conscious of that. Um, getting your training nailed down uh, perfectly, I guess I mean, and figuring what that perfect is for you, you know, I know with me I can make progress on on heavy threes and fives and ones, and then I get my volume in with things that don 't don 't uh, kill my joints too much so but um yeah other than that man, forty pounds in a month to a bench that's a that 's a pretty tall order, and mm-hmm. same thing with a hundred pounds and over a hundred pounds to a deadlift. I mean, I think it's doable in time. I wouldn't be so tied into, if you really want those numbers, I would get untied to needing to be in the same weight class um, because the fastest way to add some of those pounds is going to be adding pounds to your body weight, if that's your real goal. If your real goal is I just want those numbers, then start eating. Yeah. But the problem with that is you're going to start eating, and now you have even more daily impact on those already arthritic joints. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, He's battling a number of things. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not possible. I, I think it's doubtful. But you can hit those by the end of December. Now, can you hit those by the end of next year? Yeah, probably, with correct training and figuring it out. So,
0: I'm wondering, we are sort of in the middle of a series of picking Phil's brain on adding 20 pounds to a, a specific lift, like, in a day. You know, sort of a technique discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, not a promise, but an exploration of doing that maybe there are some technique issues and again it's hard to know yes. that right without you actually watching him um, Yeah. like oh you know because yeah. i've seen you do some very cool things with just talking about like resistance arms and stuff in the in the deadlift or getting sure. flat against the bar in the squad i mean i learned a lot of cool stuff from you kind of brought up memories of kinesiology class you know mm-hmm. and so there could be some things like that that might be good for a a, a quick jump here with max Perfect. as well
2: yeah, for sure, but we can't address those at all because I can't see anything. No, that's going right? On. I'm, that's what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> right on. Right on.
2: So yeah, you're I talking mean, about true that strength. might be a thing
0: yeah. that he
2: can do is reach out to if he has somebody near him uh, that can just address form issues if he has any, or you know, hire a coach and send videos. So yeah,
0: okay, uh, Mike, let's bring you in on this one. Uh, the arthritis thing. I know he says his supplementation is perfect, but you know, um, sometimes that's a, that's a perception. I think. Perfect, or you know, saying very solid. Uh, maybe you're not always completely aware of what's available. Do you have any thoughts about joint support, anti-inflammatories, or collagen or glucosamine? Really, anything that might be supportive of his of his joints? I, I'm guessing he's not really advanced arthritis because he's 28 years yeah. old. Um, but you know, it could be some kind of very extreme version. I'm I, again, like Phil. I, I not seeing him. I don't know. You know, so uh maybe some nutrition or supplements for joint support are you a fan or
3: yeah i think there's some that are okay although i'd say the data on pretty much all of them is very mixed and even glucosamine chondroitin is yeah i'd say 50-50ish you know some people respond well to it some people don't yeah um one that i've used anecdotally that seems to work pretty good and i don't have any relationship with them is called uh, actis statin it was a specific type of glucosamine chondroitin, and they had some other things in there to help with inflammation. I initially, bought it as an equine version before they <laughs> before they had the human <laughs> version, uh, just because it was a lot cheaper. And people who were using it were doing uh, horse racing, which we talked about in the past. is always an interesting thing to look at for performance because horses probably don't have much of a placebo effect compared to us humans. Um, so I've used that one in the past. That's you know seemed to help. And with that, I noticed a difference in a couple of weeks. So it's not like you have to take it for two months to, to see any difference. Um, standard things like fish oil probably can help. You know, Things that might modulate inflammation, possibly curcumin, things around that. I also would look at uh, total dietary intake, especially fruits and vegetables. I've just noticed in myself and other uh, clients, if their fruit and veggie intake is real low, that they just tend to report creaky joints and just not feeling quite as good, which obviously makes sense with all the micronutrition and everything else in there. Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably where I would look at to start. And then kind of like what Phil was saying, I would make sure and have some way of him logging the cost of his training, whether that's just a daily one through 10 self-reployed, you know, joint pain scale or, or something so that, It doesn't get too far down the path of, ooh, this is really painful, ooh, I'm not really sure if this is the best route of progress, and that I like people to decide ahead of time, kind of, what what cost are you willing to pay? And There's no right or wrong answer, but, you know, for me, I'm kind of a wuss with pain. I don't really like any pain from training, per se, especially if it goes on more than a couple days other than just standard muscle soreness, but... Some other people may be like, I don't care. I'm I'm fine if it gets up to a 5 out of a 10 scale or even a 6. Yeah. you know. But I think having that clearly defined ahead of time and tracking that, just because I've seen too many lifters get down the path of, well, I added 10 pounds and my pain went from a 2 to an 8. Oh, I hate my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's something I had to address with my hip before it was replaced. Yeah. And I wasn't dealing with a back like he is. Yeah. You know, and I was dealing with a, hey, it's going to hurt. You can keep doing it. You can't hurt yeah. it more than you can. So I was like, okay, well, I'll deal with an eight or a nine or a ten. Yeah. You know, but I knew it was just, it wasn't going to further harm me. Right.
0: right. Yeah.
2: You know, it was just going to be pain. Yeah. But you're dealing with an arthritic back. Yeah. I yeah. don't like yeah. dealing with backs, man.
0: Oh, <laughs> so. I know, right? And he's young. You, you know, you don't yeah. want to end up destroying your back. So by the time he's 39 years old, he's you know in, in a real mess. Yes. You know. Um, hey, you know what? For what it's worth, you guys are mentioning pain. I was at a functional movement screen seminar kind of thing with some students midweek. And, um, (laughs) you know, we're going through some of these different movements. And I'm thinking, oh, that seems, you know, that's very reasonable. I can do that and I can do this. And and then one of them said, well, pain is a guide. If any of these have pain, then your score is very low. Essentially, it's the lowest score. I said, then I just went from like (laughs) a B plus to an F, all right, because (laughs) I hurt just standing here. (laughs) So – I don't know. It's it's interesting though when pain, like to, like to Mike's point, you know how tolerant are you of pain, and how much of that is just something that's gonna be there because you're in the middle of a multi-decade chronic posi- you know, condition versus something you don't want to worsen with what you're doing in the gym, you know. So,
3: okay. Do you have any thoughts on this, Doctor Isretel, while you're on here?
4: Yeah, um,
3: I think all of the stuff you guys have said is
4: really spot on and you know i'm just not a real big fan of what i would call napoleonic goals um uh you know i've i've had them before myself i think maybe we all have but goals that seem you know what is it uh like uh, i think Bill said was you know not impossible in the technical sense but anything but um and i i guess so so the, the goal is that these this total is supposed to increase in one month. Is that my correct understanding? Roughly, yeah.
0: Or?
4: And do we have any any information on this individual's training
0: uh, age total? How Not, long have they been? No, yeah, just biological age, yeah.
4: Yeah. Um. Man, you know,
0: even for a,
4: like a rank beginner, that kind <laughs> of increase is really – like if, if I see someone in their first several months of training – at those strength levels, at all that he's talking about is already impressive. If they gain that much, you know, this mm-hmm. is somebody who's going to end up being one of the best powerlifters in the world. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but if if they've been training for for uh, any longer than a
0: year, I mean, oh he has almost comp- Yeah, he. Uh, well, I'm sorry, he okay. did say it's been. He just says a couple of years. Yeah, uh, over the past years,
4: yeah, just, he says. Just, so, uh, I would say, I'd be willing to bet a considerable sum of money that this is completely out of the question to gain this much. And and sort of for the point. I think that once you are a really experienced lifter or a very experienced coach and you have mapped a trajectory of your own or of your athlete's ascension rates in terms of strength, you know, from meet to meet, you could have plans like, okay, I think it's reasonable to go 10 kilos on squat, seven kilos on bench, five kilos on, on deadlift, so on and so forth, because of the trajectory we've had, because we know how this person responds to training, so on and so forth. But I think outside of those pretty rare circumstances where your monitoring is very good, uh, what I like to do instead is to simply follow a very good plan, to have very good auto-regulated feedback, and to just do the best. You know, do the best you can because if you do a good plan, then you just get what you're going to get, right? We could all say, well, you know, I've got a plan. that I think I'm going to total 2,000 pounds more. And somebody else could say, well, use the exact same plan, an identical twin, and hope for just one pound more in their total. Both people are probably going to get 30 (laughs) 30 pounds on their total, right? So, like, this conception of I want this much more, I think is a little bit maybe not needless, but maybe distracting from the real issue of, hey, listen, you know, he says his supplements are are good – his diet is good. His training is solid. you got nothing to worry about. Just uh, like I think as, as Mike said, develop some kind of sort of tracking, understanding of how much pain you're experiencing, know when to back off and when to push it, and then just do your best, and then don't worry about all the numbers. They'll put themselves together because all you have power of is the intervention, and then the result of that intervention is sort of out of your hands. It's a matter of physiology and the interaction of, of your training with that.
0: Yeah, I think um, not to be – Beat this to death, but I think this is sort of a case of diminishing returns. It looks like Max is sort of an intermediate lifter. Um, mm-hmm. And he said what he says, or what he calls hitting a brick wall, I might call just you're out of the beginner phase, bro. You know, yeah, and you're bro. just, you're not going to make multi, you know, tens of pounds gains in every lift every month. You're probably, you know, it's, it, it, well, I heard something recently about uh, when it comes to like becoming. Like the philosophy or the, th- the psychology of excellence, it's sort of like people tend to move from getting a lot of satisfaction from variety and large reward, and then they start to actually get satisfaction. You have to retool and become satisfied with nuance, you know. Or, uh, mm-hmm. like, I, sometimes I use Phil as an example in class when we talk about training principles, you know, that Phil will fight, fight all year long, and it'd be a huge win just to get 10 pounds on an already very big deadlift, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be expecting 40 pounds on his deadlift every six months, you know, like c- continuously with no plateau, you know. So, okay. Um, all right. Uh, because of our guest, I, I'm, I'm going to sort of table uh, the news except to say two things.
1: Strength and Muscle Sport News.
0: One, uh, listeners, please go check out last week. I want you to take to heart um, – I speculated a bit on muscle tendon health, uh, Mike. If you remember, uh, we were just yeah. talking about that. Uh, with the information I had, I, and it wasn't bad advice, but I, on further analysis, let's put it this way: I think that study was a little bit more focused on muscle because they kept talking about the muscle tendon complex, you know. And I think we might have overemphasized the tendon part. Uh, when it comes to like nutrients and big big eats and how they drive, you know, the muscle tendon complex and that sort of thing. So it may have been a little bit more on the muscle side than on the tendon side. I just think that was their nomenclature, right? Talking about the muscle tendon complex, but basically meaning muscle strength. Um, but having said that, nothing we said was wrong, but, you know, that's why we give it the reference. I just encourage everybody to go read that stuff. Um, and then, lastly, just some special thanks. Uh, the fall funds drive is underway, and Michael and Merrick, thank you guys. Uh, those sorts of fall donations they help keep us on the air. You know, as we approach episode five hundred, I mean, we are four episodes away from the five hundred mark. Um, you know, it helps us decide how long do we want to keep doing this, and you know, can we pay for the server come January? <laughs> Stuff like that. So yep. it's it's much appreciated. Okay, uh, Doctor Nelson. Um, let's get some cool background info.
3: Yeah, so give us some background there, Doctor Izratel, on how you kind of got into to training, how you wanted to, ended up going to do a, a PhD from a very well-known figure in the field, and how you got to where you're at now.
4: Sure, thanks. So, um, I started out in high school uh, wrestling. Um, kind of by accident, almost, a friend of mine was on his way to wrestling practice, and I, I just wanted to hang out. And I was like, hey, you want to hang out? He's like, oh, I'm going to wrestling. And I was like, oh, all right, I'll just join you. Um, and I ended up wrestling for four years in high school, and it was there that I was introduced to what you could call physical culture, right? Uh, because prior to that, you know, I liked physical activity and sports just fine, but you know, wrestling was... You had to win, so you had to sort of try to organize your life, uh, nutrition, recovery training around some kind of principles in order to get a better better victory percentage. And then for wrestling, I started lifting weights um, to try to get stronger because it was very apparent that getting stronger was going to make me better. And I ended up going on a a real big journey with uh, lifting weights in high school that ended up uh, in college. I kept lifting weights, but I no longer wrestled and um i uh, went through a bunch of different majors and stuff in college until i realized like gee you know I'm, I'm getting real serious about lifting i started competing in powerlifting and i was just became obsessed with the idea of becoming stronger and i switched my major to kinesiology i ended up doing a masters program uh at appalachian state in strength and conditioning basically and interned with uh sports teams there and did some research in the lab and then I did uh, went to New York City for a year to be a personal trainer, realized that I still needed to know a whole lot more for my, just my own personal satisfaction, and at this point I was becoming more interested in hypertrophy and muscle size and, and maybe competing in bodybuilding, so uh, I decided uh, to enroll or to apply, and then I got in to Dr. Mike Stone's PhD program in uh, sport physiology at East Tennessee State. And those were three years of some of the most learning I had ever had in my life. Um, it was unbelievable. Uh, as soon as I got there within the first week, I realized that I just didn't know any sports science at all. I, I wasn't <laughs> sure what it is. What it is that I had been learning the entire time, Dr. Stone actually literally asked me that. Like, in class, he would, you know, would volunteer answers. And I was real good at the physiology stuff. And he would ask me sports science stuff. And I was just like, I have no idea what you mean by that. Um, And he was like, well, Where did you, how come you don't know any sports science? And I was like, Well, I guess that's why I'm here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I learned uh, sports science and finished my PhD. And at, at the time, I started competing in bodybuilding. And then, uh, because of my uh, expanding knowledge in nutrition, I got to have a role with the uh, Olympic Training Center that we had at the site, in which I consulted the weightlifters on just basic nutrition, nutrition around training, and helping them make weight classes. And uh, during this time, um, my friend Nick Shaw and I, we, um, I had had some clients in New York, and he would had stayed in New York and, and been a personal trainer. And uh, I was writing nutrition for some of his clients that he was doing training for, and I was at a distance. So it, it got kind of tiresome for him to refer to me as Well, you know, this is my friend, Mike, because, you know, it's kind of weird. You know, here's my friend to do nutrition. And the colleague sounds a little better than that. Um, And, of course, I had clients who I was doing nutrition for that were referred to me in New York City by other people. And they had never even met me. So they were working with me online. They liked it. And then they would say things like, well, you know, my trainer – tells me to do this and this and that. And I think he's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, well, he's definitely wrong. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're like, maybe I should have a better trainer. Do you know any good trainers in the city? And I was like, well, there's Nick Shaw. And, again, he got tired of being like, what, what? they're like, well, who's that? I, I got tired of being like, well, it's my buddy. You know, so we started a company called Renaissance Periodization, where we just uh, really committed to the scientific approach to training and nutrition, um, especially at that, at that time uh, that we were together for a year in New York City. We, there was like a huge, it was still the case, like a huge guruism going on. You know, people would literally come up to us in the gym and ask us like, "What program we were doing?" And we're like, "What do you mean?" And They're like, "Well, whose program? What name does it have? Who is the guy that made it?" And we were like, "Well, it's just periodization." And, and they're like, "What's that?" And I'm like, "Oh my god! <laughs> like, uh, does it have to have some dude's name? You know, does it have to have a commercial name?" And then so uh, we got really tired of that, so we decided we're going to try to uh, help the fitness industry in our own little way by just, just cutting out all the BS. So I ended up, uh, we started RP when I was still in PhD program. I finished that. I became a professor uh, at uh, University of Central Missouri. That's where I met uh, another friend of mine, Dr. Jen Case. She had been a very high-level grappler at that point, and uh, when I got there to my interview, I found out that she was very good at jujitsu and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I, I'm actually really tired of doing walking cardio for bodybuilding. (laughs) Um, is it's, it's just getting old. I, I might try some cardio through jiu-jitsu. And, you know, I used to wrestle. And, uh, can I start jujitsu? jitsu Can I go, you know, to your jiu-jitsu school with you when I start uh, the job in August? And she's like, yeah, sure. You know, it's like fifty trillion people always say they're going to start th- stuff like this but never do. So she was actually really surprised when I texted her like two days after I moved in in August. And I was like, hey, are we still doing jiu-jitsu? She was like, oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, sure. I didn't know you were serious. So I started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I ended up falling in love with uh, with that. And I have been doing that for five years now. Uh, my job ended up taking me to temple university in philadelphia and then uh last year um renaissance got so big finally that it was just really kind of um i wasn't the best use of my time to go back to being a professor anymore so uh, myself and some of my colleagues left there uh left academia and i uh, just do full-time rp which means i sit at home and do stuff on a computer, same, same job, except I don't get to talk to anyone anymore. So thank you for talking to me today. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I just do that, and I train a bunch, and I, I uh, compete in bodybuilding occasionally. So far, not so good at it, but I'm getting better. And uh, I actually, was quite. Su- I'm, I'm quite successful in jiu-jitsu. I'm, uh, I'm a professional grappler now, which sounds cool to say. Um, and, and that's where I'm at.
3: So. Nice. And I do have to ask, how was the jiu-jitsu for cardio i've heard very interesting stories from large mammals such as yourself who start to do jujitsu yeah totally
4: (laughs) um so at first it was just brutal i would say that from a technical sense since this is the kind of show that we can talk about that stuff the um the caloric burn to fatigue ratio is not great like uh the caloric burn to injury probability ratio is not great so every now and again people will message me and say hey i'm you know bodybuilding and I, or powerlifting, and i I want to throw jujitsu in for cardio what do you think i'm like i think that's a terrible idea <laughs> uh because it's gonna get you hurt uh at least some some uh pains and aches here and there and it'll
2: get you injured every
4: now and again probably not in a serious way but it sure as heck doesn't help and then uh it also just the the level of cumulative fatigue that it adds is really quite high uh but so but it does burn a lot of calories but the trade off isn't isn't good so i would say if you really want to burn calories you know incline walking on a treadmill or a slow jog or the elliptical even uh even better those are all really great very low injury risk very low fatigue ratio to a higher calorie burn but jiu jitsu is uh, you know it's if people ask like um you know, can I do strongman for cardio? And it's like, yeah, go ask strongman if that's a good idea. And you talk to strongman and they're like, I do as little of the events as possible uh, <laughs> to try to get better because they will just break you down. And that, and is is strongman really great for cardio? Yes. Is, is it's great for cardio. Yes. But the trade-off of injury, etc., is not there. So you've got to love it for, for what it is and sort of take the, take the pain on the chin.
3: Uh, the, and last question, and then we'll get into the <clears throat> topic of the day, but is there anything in general you miss about teaching in a formal academic situation compared to now kind of teaching more in the, I don't want to say real world, but there's a big difference between the private sector and academics. And we have people who listen to the show on both sides of the spectrum. So I always like to ask people who have been in both situations, kind of their experience and the pros and cons of each one.
4: Yeah. Well, there's plenty of cons in academia. Um I suppose I can just touch on them for a little bit uh, and then talk about at least one big pro that I missed. Uh, the cons is by no means clear that all the students you have in class are there to learn. I'm not exactly sure why a lot of university students go to school. I'm sure you guys have been in that situation. <laughs> or like, I understand you're it in does. my class. I- I don't know what it is you're trying to learn, if anything. If I simply just assigned A's at the beginning of class, I'm pretty sure 90% of the people simply would never return to lecture, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so that's kind of a weird thing. The bureaucracy is not super fun, um, and so on and so forth, and just the level of interest in what you're saying is not that great. Uh, What I do really miss about formal instruction, and there are avenues which to do this in the private sector, but they're much more limited, is the ability to really take your time and do a foundational brick-by-brick instruction of a topic to where at the end of a whole semester, you can truly say you taught someone the training principles writ large. You taught them what they are. You taught them where they're derived from. You taught them how to apply them. You taught them how to troubleshoot them because you had the time, session after session, class after class, to really get in-depth. Um, people pay pretty good money for a seminar, right? When you, you know, folks like such as yourself and myself go and give a talk, it talk could be an hour, the talk could be four hours, it could be two, six hour days, it could be a week. But you guys know as well as I do that there is a level of completeness of thought that is simply intransmittable through that kind of form. Like if you really want to learn something, it's got to take weeks, probably months and in, again in an academic setting what you can do is pile one course on top of the other on top of the other so by the time someone graduates four years from a really well designed collegiate program there's just no replacement for that depth of knowledge and I can always not always I can mostly tell when you're when you're speaking to someone with an academic background in a field versus someone who's really been interested and done a lot of seminars because there's a completeness of thought there and a holistic understanding that is irreplaceable from really putting in the time can you put the time in yourself and just read books and uh, audio books and lectures, yes, but it's going to take as long as a college degree to do. There's something really special about really diving in that seminars and, and uh, stuff like that can't do. I don't know what you guys think about that, but that, that's my, been my opinion.
3: Yeah, Lonnie and I talked about this too, and I know Phil's talked about it a little bit that I I cringe when I sometimes talk to someone who On the one hand, exactly what you said, I applaud them for taking the seminars and doing the extra effort, which is way more than most people would ever do, but it's hard because a lot of times the basics and the foundation is just not sexy, and when you're talking to them, you'll realize they made a massive leap from like A to B, but they didn't really know they made a massive leap, and that's what kind of scares me a little bit. It's like one thing to speculate and say, okay, we went out on a limb here. And here's what we kind of skipped over. when you just skip over stuff and don't realize it, it's like, ew, makes me cringe.
4: Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting, especially when people um, will ask you questions at various points and maybe after the seminar or just later when they message you online. They ask you a question that you think that the question itself is preposterous, given that you thought this person was already up to par in what you taught them right like you'll say you'll talk about the training principles you'll talk about how to program design for powerlifting for example and they'll be like hey what do you think of this program you know like what this this program is awful like why why would you ever ask that And you realize wait, wait a minute they they have like a list in their head of good programs they didn't have that program in their list so they don't know and then they have just this very general understanding of what's a good and bad program but it's not a foundational understanding to just like just just straight up cut out a huge swath of programs as inadmissible in court and the only way you get that understanding is a real real intimate understanding of the training principles and that just takes time and then it it, kind of stinks because they're sort of forever going to be susceptible to oh this new program came out what do you think of it it's like well gee i I," you know if you really want to know you got to put in the time to get the educated uh, education to really know yourself automatically what's a good program and what's not that there's no replacement for in-depth study for that
3: We'll take a little break here and then we'll get into the topic of the day, which is a perfect segue there for programming for hypertrophy.
2: I can't stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky
1: we are to be in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep iron rated in your thoughts.
0: Over the past several years there have been hundreds of listener comments Hoping that Iron radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron radio is here for you. But as with any public radio type format, the show is listener supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood.
1: Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better Internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays.
3: Hey, we're back here on Iron Radio. It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and we've got Dr. Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization on here. And we're going to talk about training and program design for hypertrophy, which is a topic that comes up a lot. And I guess kind of the, we were talking before the break about principles. So what would you say, Dr. Mike, are kind of your big Principles. So if we want to try to be more foundation-based with looking at any training program, what would you include as kind of those key principles for hypertrophy?
4: Sure, yeah. I think, like, uh, you know, if we were to restrict ourselves because there's some really key principles and then there's some other principles that may be a little bit more extra credit-y. The ones that account for the largest variance in results are, number one, specificity. Uh, number two would be overload and number three would be fatigue management and those principles are actually identical uh, in their names and basic designs for strength training and probably for most other sports the way in which they're applied for hypertrophy training is a little different so specificity basically says you know is your training tailored to grow muscle as opposed to do a trillion other things that might not be exactly what you want so some people will, you know, will do a powerlifting program and say, is this going to get me jacked? Well, yeah, to some extent, absolutely. It's not specifically designed to do that. And when you look through your program, the real easy way to test specificity is to point to any part of it and, and ask the question, does this feature directly grow muscle or at least train an underlying system that will eventually grow me muscle? If the answer is no... Bad news, you're violating specificity. (laughs) Uh, It's as simple as that. Next is overload, which is a two-part definition. One is training that you're doing on average within a maximum threshold. Is it – within the overload threshold, is it challenging to your physiology? If you can do five reps of a dumbbell curl and you potentially could have done 25, is that really overloading? It's not, right? So then you have a problem where you're not really uh, using your training time well, very effectively – and then the second part of overload is the progression aspect of, is your training getting harder with time? So training has to be difficult, and it also has to increase in difficulty over time if you're going to be successfully getting as much muscle as you can. And then, of course, fatigue management is a principle that's kind of a kind of like, a, like a, damn it, like, we have to have this principle. Ideally, we wouldn't. If we were super crazy alien physiology, we would never accumulate fatigue. It wouldn't be a problem. But the thing is, it's it's literally a rule in physiology that any process that, is uh, overloading enough to stimulate gains is also going to be causing enough fatigue to where that has to be dealt with and fatigue is a cumulative phenomenon it adds up over days weeks and for sure months if you make it that far without addressing it and you have to sort of uh, do something about fatigue uh, fundamentally at the certain time frames and always be aware of it because you can't just train super hard all the time You need some training breaks every now and again, some lighter sessions, so on and so forth. And within that context, you also have to make sure your general recovery all the time is good which means sleep, nutrition, so on and so forth. So those training principles, You know, if you look at a training program, you can ask, okay, is this program specific to putting on muscle? Okay, yes, check. Okay, is this program sufficiently overloading and is it progressive? Yes, check. And then does this program have features about it, forget even diet and training, just in the program itself, that attempt to deal with the concept of cumulative fatigue, that understand that the body is a system that has limits in its adaptive ability, limits in how much training it can recover from. If you check that as a yes, gee, you got a pretty good program on your hands, and the rest is details. Details that matter, but they only account for maybe 10 or 20% of the variance and program effect. Uh, if you have the big three in place, you're off to a real good start.
3: Do you find that people tend to be overly focused on the details initially and kind of just leave out one of those entirely?
4: oh yeah (laughs) of course Um, so they'll focus on other principles that they might not even know have names like the SRA principle stimulus recovery adaptation is a principle that basically codes in training frequency right it it says that okay you stimulate uh, a muscle it recovers and adapts and then you re-stimulate it again and and people are sort of obsessed with the time courses like "Do, do I train biceps every other day is it every day is it once a week and uh, the entire time, they'll just forget fatigue management exists altogether or not know. It's interesting because frequency, you could answer, going, knowing nothing about training, you could be like, oh, how often do I need to train? That's a question anyone can ask. But cumulative fatigue is a principle that you may not even know exists until you run headfirst into it. And you go, "There's <laughs> huh, something's happening here. I seem to want to apply the overload principle, but something just every now, every four weeks, I seem to just fall apart. I remember when I used to trained back as an undergraduate I didn't even know fatigue management existed what I would do is I was do I was doing multiple set to failure programs all the time like every single set was to failure <laughs> multiple sets per session multiple sessions per week and after three weeks I hit the, the same wall every single time and I just couldn't figure out why like I would squat 315 pounds and I would get like roughly sets of 10 I would squat 325 pounds get roughly sets of 10 I would do 335 and I would get roughly sets of 10 and the next week I would try three. 3- 45 and it will get like four, three two one zero and i was like what happened (laughs) like maybe i could get sets of eight at least and you know what happened was i had basically accumulated enough fatigue to exceed the most volume my body could recover from in a given time and then that fatigue spilled over and degraded my ability to perform and i you know i that's what you would call auto deloading which is when you get so weak from over too much fatigue you can't overload so by definition you're deloading (laughs) so so uh, you know that's a very injury risky way to do deloading and it's not the most productive eventually i sort of learned more to realize okay i know when my fatigue is going to be higher i'm going to either through auto regulation detect it and then take a some easy training to recover or i can pre-plan it pretty well if i know my body enough and through the combination of those two things i can actually know when to back off uh instead of just running into a wall every single time
3: yeah i think all lifters can kind of relate to that in general i mean i know when i started lifting it was uh it was such a debacle and it was so bad that at the the gym in college the guy running the gym there after about seeing me show up every day i literally did the same routine i think every day for five days in a row <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> after the second week him finally pulled me aside and be like uh hey buddy you you may want to try to do something different and i'm like But if I'm trying to get better at this thing, shouldn't I just be doing it as much as possible? he's like, well, how's that working for you? I'm like, not very well. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. When you set stuff up, um, is there ways you can, you mentioned pre-planning. So is there kind of a general, I know it's going to vary, but template for, you know, kind of push hard or add more volume for X amount of time and then kind of back off? Like what does that kind of look like from a high level?
4: totally and i think the the concept of repetitions and reserve um can guide us pretty well with that so um you know you want to start out with something that's challenging i guess i can put it in a technical sense your program should probably start or a mesocycle of your program a one to three month progression should start at the very bottom of the overload threshold which means the volume you're doing in total should be close to your minimum effective volume, like the least volume you can do and still make gains. When you start down there, your reps in reserve, right, how far you're pushing it before you hit failure on every rep on average, should start at the lower end of the effective range. We know through some pretty decent research now that that's like roughly four or five reps on the tank. You know, because if you think about it, like, if you do six reps in the tank for every set, it's just like an extended warm-up. And if you go straight to failure, boy, you accumulate fatigue really asymmetrically to how much you accumulate fitness, right? If you train to failure all the time, you're going to go, especially as a more advanced athlete, one or two weeks, and you're just going to be like, Nah, I can't keep going like this. This My literal performance can't keep up. It's just going to start getting degradation. But something like, let's say, four reps in the tank, you're getting a good – Just a just a bare minimum hit, uh, good stimulus, but the fatigue accumulation is not super crazy. So then you start at that volume, you start at that reps in reserve, and you can add training variables to that. Add dosing, either in the form of weight on the bar or number of sets that you're doing, just to sort of pure volume uh, week after week after week. And as you add those variables, we could get more detailed about which one, you know, and what ratios you probably want to add them for hypertrophy versus strength, because there's something to say there. But as you add those, uh, add more and more training, uh, you're, you're automatically, if your performance is going to be s- stable and you're going to keep e- either performing a little better or not performing any worse, you're, as fatigue accumulates, your repetitions in reserve are going to go down. So maybe the first, let's say we're talking about a relative beginner intermediate who is making really good gains, has really good fatigue management. Maybe your first two weeks of the program, uh, because you're you know adapting to the training very well, you're going to be roughly four reps in reserve, even though you're adding sets and adding weight on the bar. You know, weeks uh, three through four, it might get a little tougher. You may be doing three repetitions in reserve on average if you try to, you know, uh, add a little weight to the bar, add some more sets, but not let your repetitions drop, for example. And then, you know, weeks five and six, you might be like, oh, two reps in the tank. Week seven and eight, you might be like one rep in the tank. And, And then week nine, you basically start hitting failure and can't match your reps anymore. You Don't have to make this prediction, but you will learn to make it. Is that week ten will be a giant unmitigated disaster if you try to do it? (laughs) Uh, You're doing your the most volume you've ever done, the most weight you've ever done, and you're hitting one rep away from failure or actual failure itself. Like next week's probably not going to go so well. Now you could try it and probably should earlier in your career to see what that tastes like, (laughs) uh, and then realize that it's it's when you hit those really high fatigue levels and high exertion levels. Next week, it's a good idea to deload, maybe cut your volume and intensity by 50%, not get within five reps of, of anything, of any failure. Uh, you know, Eat well, sleep well, really relax, let the fatigue come down like crazy. And then in the next week, you start your next mesocycle where you reassess where your minimum effective volume is. You pick weights and intensities and repetition ranges where you're again four reps or so away from failure, and you start the ascension or what in sports science is called the accumulation phase again, and you do the sort of repeat the same thing. You could do the same exercises uh, potentially every two or three of those mesocycles. Um, it, for beginners, it's a little less often. You alternate exercises, you switch them in, switch them out. Maybe you've been doing a lot of hack squats you replace with leg presses, and you start another uh, accumulation phase. And, and that's basically the, the real core of how that training would work.
3: Very cool. Do you use a lot of reps in reserve, Phil? Or do you, how do you program that for your your lifters?
2: How do I measure reps?
3: Uh, do you use like a reps in reserve? Or do you use oh, a yeah. kind of bar well, speed? Or what do you yeah. use?
2: Uh, we'll use like a, a rate of exertion.
3: Okay, like, RP. Like, yeah. I want
2: you, yeah, I want you to go to an eight. You know, like right now, me and several of my lifters getting ready for a meet. Most of our weeks are are calling it at about an eight, an eight intensity, and I'm usually watching that and calling it for them. I kind of know what an eight looks like. It's still yeah. move. it's not going to be ugly. It's going to move pretty crisp, but it's not going to be easy. You know? um, but I know they got a couple reps in the tank. So and that's what I tell them an eight or a couple reps in the tank. So we use that a lot, and then every usually every fourth week or so. We'll unhinge that a little bit if things are going well, and then we'll back it back down. So, um, yeah, you just can't push the envelope all the time with with anybody above, you know, th- pure beginner. I mean, beginners yeah. are like, you can just ah throw it at them, and then next week they're automatically <laughs> stronger. So, you
4: know, you know what? If I can uh, if I can interject really quick, yeah. I think that that's a, it's a super valid point that you, only beginners can really survive a sort of constant barrage. But I also think it's worth noting that beginners are precisely the, the individuals who you may not even even because they because they can handle it doesn't mean they should yeah. be subjected to it oh, because oh, as, as Phil I'm sure as you know beginners are the most likely to make huge technical errors mm-hmm. as they approach failure or as they approach high fatigue levels. And at that point, gee, you know, you're not only setting them up for needless beginner injury. I mean, if you're getting hurt as a beginner, I have no idea how you think you're gonna be doing as an intermediate and advanced person. Right. Yeah. Like you if you're getting hurt as an advanced person, you're just welcome to the sport, right? But yeah. you know, as a beginner, you don't want to start accumulating injuries that early if you can avoid it. And of course, you know, as you're approaching failure and stuff, you start to Break down your technique, you're actually learning to do the lift because you're doing repetitions with that technique. Technique In the technical, motor learning sense, you are learning to do the lift wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, the, it's the worst thing in the world when you, like, and I'm sure you guys have been through this, you inherit a beginner-slash-intermediate lifter from someone else, like a uh, so coach of someone else or just by themselves. And you're like, what? Show me what a deadlift looks like. And they just, Uh-oh. like, tear acid off the floor. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's not a deadlift. So we're just going to relearn that. And they're like, well, how, well, you're saying I have to use 100 less pounds on the bar? And like, yes, yes your yeah. life has been an illusion. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a process which, you know, you have to actually throw away. The concept of overload for a while to seek technical perfection and boy you're sort of quote-unquote wasting three months of their training career but you're not wasting it it's like time you're getting back which is so so like just because you can push it crazy as a beginner it doesn't mean you should as a matter of fact you probably shouldn't
3: yeah my little trick that i would do in my garage if i had some of those people especially more in the past is I'm like, all your deadlifts now so they don't look like a pooping dog are done with a <laughs> double overhand grip on a two-inch axle that doesn't revolve. Because if you can't hold on to that thing, you're not going to come up with it. So it's much harder for you to screw it up. Because it just won't go anywhere. Yeah. So, But they hate that. So like, but my lifts are like hundreds of pounds less. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh Cool. So switching gears a little bit more towards the nutrition side, I know we've talked about uh, training. Any of your kind of top principles you see for nutrition? And I guess the follow-up question to that is, you know, kinda how prescriptive can you even be with nutrition, at least in the US?
4: Yeah. Well,
3: so um I think that the principles in
4: nutrition that, that rank top three Uh, for exerting themselves on muscle growth is number one would be calorie balance. Like if you're not eating enough food to gain weight or at least maintain your weight, very least, just not going to be gaining a whole lot of muscle unless you're in a real extenuating circumstance. So um, I think a lot of people who weigh 140 pounds ask, you know, how do I get jacked? And the answer is <laughs> not weigh 140 pounds anymore. <laughs> and, and and the only way to do that is to eat more calories than you burn, which for some people is challenging. And you know, you guys have been around the block more than once. You know that some people are like, oh I can't eat this much food. Like we're well, just not going to be big then. I, I don't know what to tell you. So you, you gotta make sure to eat plenty of foods. Calories number one. Number two is a very close second is a sufficient intake of the macronutrients, proteins, carbs, fats, but with hypertrophy specifically making sure to check that protein box, right? And um, yes, it's probably better to have more carbs than fats because carbs potentiate training and growth better. Uh, You have to have some fats, uh, sure, but uh, carbs are valuable, but protein is just, um, you know, it's literally the raw material of muscle growth and is the most anti-catabolic of the nutrients. So protein around a gram per pound-ish just in that ballpark especially when you're people just starting out for muscle growth like i just want to see that you're trying to eat protein i remember catching uh, during hypertrophy phases um i used to coach a strength coach of sports science for volleyball and i would catch the volleyball girls walking across the uh the Dome, the, uh, the competition center that we were all in, and I would, I would catch them and be like, what's that in your hand? And they're like, it's my lunch. And I'm like, what is it? And they're like, it's a bagel with <laughs> potato chips and an apple. And I'm like, get oh, the hell out of my sight. And they just hang their head down like, where's the protein? So you know, I don't like to, like, especially with beginners, people starting out I don't like to throw numbers at them, unless they're receptive to that. You know, a lot of people, like, if you start with a computer scientist as a client, they're like, numbers, give me numbers. I'm like, yes. oh, boy, well, you're in luck. <laughs> uh, here, we <laughs> got all the numbers, don't worry. But for people just starting out, like, just try to consistently take in fist-sized portions of protein, for God's sake, and then you will get jacked. Because a lot of times, I've seen this, especially with athletes, I like track and field and stuff like that, they just won't eat any measurable amount of protein, but they'll... It, 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 I, I'm actually comfortable using the term waste so much time in the gym trying to get muscular to no avail because they're simply not supplying you know, the amount of protein that you need. And then lastly, and, and I mean lastly in the, in the very technical sense that it has the least effect, is um, something like uh, how much uh, you know, your nutrient timing is being paid attention to. And it doesn't need to be crazy, but I think for hypertrophy, so, sort of at least – Three, but preferably four to five meals a day, roughly evenly spread in the in the uh, uh, throughout the day. Uh, you're you're just not spending a ton of time not eating food, um, and the protein dosing and just the general food bolus should be roughly pretty similar, right? So you got a decent breakfast, decent lunch, decent dinner, decent late night snack. All of them have protein. You're getting enough calories you're off to a pretty good start. Can we get more nitpicky than that? Oh, totally. But I think if you don't have those things in place, that's where I'm going to first to try to fix your nutrition.
3: Awesome. And then I know obviously you help run a company that guides people with you know training and nutrition. Any thoughts on, do you write it kind of as a rough template or in terms of, I hate to use the word prescriptive because obviously we're just, guiding people with, you know, health parameters or not trying to cure their diabetes or kidney function or anything like that, but any thoughts? Because I get this question a lot, and I know Lonnie gets it all the time, I'm sure Phil gets it, is, I mean, I did a whole certification and I had people who did it and they're like, oh my God, but I'm so afraid to mention the word protein to a client because then they're going to think I'm being prescriptive. I'm like, well, I think you went a little too far on the other end of the spectrum, but you get people to go too far on the other end of the spectrum from that, too.
4: Well, I'm very comfortable saying that our company cures all diseases with its products, so buy them now. We're <laughs> super comfortable being prescriptive because we are the end-all. We're trying to start a religion, too. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> on a serious note, um, so so at our company, we actually have probably close to half now of our coaches are registered dietitians. So they are in the legal and technical sense able to be completely prescriptive. Um, But they almost never are because um, and it's interesting. Some folks come, you know, it's it's like I'm sure doctors deal with this kind of thing all the time where patients come in and say, I want this. This is what's wrong with me. And the doctor has to be like, "Mm, hold up. (laughs) Let's actually find out what's going on and then give you the recommendation that medicine would. I think a lot of people do that in diet. One thing I've seen people do, and I'm sure you guys have run into it, is you give people a guideline of like, try eating this much protein per day, right? That's not a prescription, it's a general recommendation. And here are some foods that fit that category, like, chicken, breast, turkey, vegan products, eggs, and you give them a list of maybe 10 foods and say any other foods are good as long as they fit the general template here. Um, you do that with carbs, fats, and so on and so forth. And a lot of people say, well, you know, can you just tell me what to eat? The, the thing is just like exact food by food plans are almost always, not always, almost always awful because people just don't understand how – Much momentum they're going to lose by eating the same stuff all the time. Like, people, like, literally, we have like uh, one of our best selling products at at RP is uh, diet templates, which basically do exactly what I just described. They give you amounts, they give you meals, and they let you go free ball with the food, but they make some good suggestions and good, healthy, muscle building foods. And people have some of the feedback we get, which is pretty rare, but some people are like, oh my God, this got so many options. Can you guys just tell me what to eat? And it's like, that's not going to work. You won't be able to do what we say for any longer than about a week until you just quit and they're like no I swear I could just eat chicken breast and broccoli it's just like if you offer me turkey and kale I just have like decision fatigue and I won't be able to do it like geez I don't really know how you get through life at all so <laughs> so it's one of those things like if, if you know what a lean protein looks like if you know what a healthy carb looks like fruits veggies whole grains if you know what healthy fats look like you know avocados olive oil etc There's a lot of mixing and matching you can do, and you learn how to put together good, healthy meals. Then you don't have to have a prescription. You can just have the generality and do super, super well. And I think because that offers flexibility and variation, it's probably the best approach for most people. Unless you have a medical circumstance where a nutritionist has to literally tell you what to eat, I think most people will do really well with that kind of enough flexibility to get good variety in. But enough guidance right we'll say we well, probably need this much protein per meal and they're like well, what if i eat 100 grams more than that well, you probably shouldn't do that you know uh so in the age of you know if it fits your macros versus exact food prescription i think there's a middle ground there that works really well for most people
3: yeah do you find that lonnie when i know you work with clients every once in a while and have a lot more in the past do you find that even though you're an rd you probably don't use that to the extent you probably could just because you find it's not as useful or what are your thoughts on that
0: well it's one of the reasons i don't work with clients that often frankly uh yeah because <laughs> i mean we could do a whole episode just on sort of the you know the nutrition care process which is not just for medical stuff but i mean you know assess diagnose intervene monitor all these things were set down um years ago now Because I think they wanted to standardize how dietitians practiced. You know, you'd get these old school dietitians that I – and again, I'm talking about the history now. But a lot of, like, coaches, like, oh, I've seen this for years. I do it this way. You know, or in my training, uh, like at the Cleveland Clinic, I would write a soap note, you know, for a client. Um, And and again, that's a way to try to structure it, subjective, objective, assess, and plan. Um, And and then I would go down the hall to to the GI floor – And after just getting done on the cardiac floor and they'd say, this is this is not how you do it. I do it like this. So there was so much variation that I think they tried to standardize it. Uh, Like I said, I'm not going to go off on a tirade. That's probably a show in itself. Even the list of nutrition diagnoses that we use, you know, they have a PES statement, problem, etiology, signs and symptoms. It's very structured and it's very literature based and it's gone on for decades you know, um, now the nutrition care process is a little bit newer, but still pretty, pretty established. So that's one of the things that makes me a little concerned. Is when I would work with, a, or if I were to work with a fitness client or someone in sports nutrition setting, sometimes things. This system still applies, but it increases the responsibility in some ways. I guess what I'm saying is sometimes it's funny. After pursuing all of the necessary coursework and internship and hospitals and nursing homes and outpatient and WIC clinics and all these different things, I still find myself, when I talk to people, opting to just answer more generalized questions. You know, people like you <laughs> tend to benefit from a scoop away protein after you lift, you know, or the science says this or the science says that. Because for liability reasons, when I start to invoke a much more formalized process You know of assessment And all the things that go into that You know the um, medical history And drug interactions And all these other things um, Most people in the fitness world They don't do that They they don't really follow a, a super structured process Unless it's one they invent themselves um, And I think when you try to invent yourself uh, Into these systems You're just overlooking decades of established stuff You know but here I am starting to go off. So. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, hiring yeah. dietitians would be one way to do that. But at the same time, I'm well aware I actually have much more interesting conversations with doctorally trained exercise phys people when it comes to nutrition uh, than I do with uh, a lot of you know, um, entry-level or mid-level dietitians because I don't think they have the same grasp of the physiology and how it interfaces with, with the exercise and you know, the training principles and everything else. So,
4: Yeah, at RP, we don't um, for sure just hire dietitians with that training. Yeah, yeah. They have to have a long history of working with athletes. And, and really, I'm just going to go out and say it uh, because this is a part of our hiring process. They have to be longtime athletes themselves. You can't prescribe sport nutrition well to your best if you haven't been there. I've seen it too many times. I'm sure you guys have too where like they'll hire a fresh-out-of-school nutritionist, to do nutrition for a sports team and they're like basically treating these folks like their medical cases and uh <laughs> and, and it's like well you know oh they don't need any more protein than this and that you know according to this and that study and you're like well first of all your research is outdated because your professors are outdated the moment you enrolled in school and and second of all like geez you just never been there before and it's uh, it's really tough to work with a population when you have just a sort of in, in the written terms, you have the training, but it turns out you don't have any athletic experience yourself when you haven't worked with athletes before. That's a huge part of it. And I think a lot of people think registered dietitian, they think, oh, qualified to deal with any kind of diet. Well, qualified, yes, maybe in a technical sense, but are they going to be amazing at it? Maybe not. And I think a real, real... Solid candidate for doing a great job with nutrition prescription is a registered dietitian that has a lot of experience with their own nutrition and athletic performance and has worked with tons of athletes. Now, that's a person that could do a good job potentially. Whereas, if you just have the RD or, geez, if you just have the experience and not the formal degree, there's going to be stuff you're going to miss big time.
0: Yeah, that's what's so rare in the industry, frankly. I mean, I know we're running out of time here, but that's essentially what's so rare is you get the people that do it they're athletes or you get someone who's uh more of a clinically focused dietitian right but rarely do, do they meet in between you know and they've got a little bit of they've got perspective from from both um so yeah you're telling me
4: you're telling me we try to hire these people we we have to do searches that go on forever and we just hire no one
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, all
4: right <laughs> Who's going to work for us? And those crickets are like, okay, doke. Okay. It's funny enough, anytime we post a position anywhere, uh, we're like, okay, we're looking for an you know, RD with weightlifting experience or sport experience and someone who's worked with clients before and such and such, and like, I'll get like 10 messages and I'll be like, so I don't have my RD, but I like sports, even though I've never done them. I'm like, why are you, <laughs> thank you for reaching out. We'll stay in touch. <laughs> you know? Yeah, And
0: you know what, Mike? I think the reason for you get that partly is because in, in a lot of athletic training, uh. Not athletic training as a field, but in mm. sports training kinds of settings, there's not licenses that have to be enforced, you know, by the the state government. You know, of course, it's a state by state kind of thing. But um, there's like you could be a coach and not necessarily be licensed in it, right? And don't get me wrong, a license alone. How many people have driver's licenses and they drive like idiots? <laughs> you know, so so you got to be careful. I agree with that very much. Like the experiential part. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of where a lot of this comes from. Like people will say, "Lonnie, you're so paranoid. I have to fill, fill out all this paperwork before I even begin." Well, yeah, you have you have to realize this is regulated, like you know, medicine, like dentistry, like other things like that. It's not the same thing because in exercise science, we don't have licensure. We don't have to do things that way. A certificate is not a license. It's a different kind of setup. You know, so I, I think it's very yeah. foreign to them that it, it it has to be approached a little differently. That's all. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah. Last question as we wrap up. Um, obviously, you've got a lot of great experience with yourself and clients and a huge academic background. And you've seen all sorts of stuff, I'm sure, running the business over the years. What would you say is the number one mistake related to hypertrophy? And what would you do to change it?
1: Number one,
3: man, you're putting me on the spot. I know. I gotta. Marcos said I gotta get some really good questions to you, or he's gonna be mad at me. I I don't know anyone by that name, and <laughs> I don't like that
4: name. Um, uh, I got a shout out to Marcos. What up, <laughs> Marcos? If you're listening to this. Um as a very long time friend of mine and a uh, mutual friend of ours, all right, so anyway uh, mistake okay i'll I'll pick one out of a hat. I can't say it's the number one, but oh, yeah, I'll say it's it's real it's real gnarly um assuming some somewhere between assuming or hoping that hypertrophy is a short term process and uh, attempting to put in considerable amounts of effort that is over what i would say is your top threshold for sustainability of your own efforts uh for short times in order to try to realize results so here's what i'm going to do that somebody is like i want to grow muscle and they're like all right here we go you start rubbing your hands together and they're like i'm gonna eat this many calories this many meals i'm gonna cook my own food i'm gonna train twice a day they put together this gnarly like olympia prep kind of program and if the program is basically designed to fail within a month. Like there's no way anyone short of an Olympian bodybuilder is going to be able to keep this up. And what they do is they burn themselves to the ground. After a month, they're like fall off the wagon. I'm sure you guys have seen this with a trillion people before, where they're like, How's your program? Like, well, you know, life got in the way, you know, the life (laughs) the kids you know insert trope here and they're just not doing it anymore and a lot of times they're doing something much worse or much less um, of a degree of intervention or they're doing nothing at all and what i would really like to see them do instead is just put together some decent basics and stick to them you want muscle size it's not going to hit you in a month like people like I almost like have like an allergy, like a psychological allergy to people be like, man, my gains in the last month. And my go shut up, shut up, stop. I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care what your gains have been in the last month. Um, I care about your gains over two or three years. But that's how that's how long it takes to get much bigger. I care about your gains over ten years. So what can you do? Don't have Napoleonic goals and plans. Don't try to overcommit to a crazy process you'll never sustain yourself through. Just eat good meals, get some protein in, live your life good nutrition, good rest, make it to the gym four or five days a week maybe, have a good logical program that is fun, provide overload, watch your body weight, let it creep up over months and months. When you get too fat, cut down a little bit, then let your body weight creep up again. After two or three years, you will be bigger. Um, You might not be Marcos Rodriguez big, but you will be bigger, (laughs) and then that will be how you get success. It's so many people, I'm sure, come up to you guys and I get this plenty at the gym. Like they'll watch me do like close grip bench press with a tank top on, and I'll stand up, and they're like, "What the hell happened? Like, how do you get your arms like that?" And I'm like, 20 years of training." And they're like, "Oh, you got to see like the life flow out from their <laughs> eyes." Right? And it's not a four week program. It's not a four week program. Uh, so I just if, if I can imbue any sort of value to that. Way of looking at things of stop looking at these programs. You guys remember reading like Flex Magazine and Muscular Development? Oh, yeah. Great magazines, taking nothing away from them, but they got to throw the stake to the sharks every now and again. So it'd be like, your plateau buster program this month. And it's like, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just a good solid foundation taken over months and months and years and years. That's how you grow. It's not over a month. It's not over weeks.
3: Yeah, it was always the. I remember Lee Priest once saying, he's like, Oh, crikey, if I have to do like another, you know, four week arm training program, he's like, I don't even <laughs> yeah. train my arms that much. They've always been big. <laughs> You're like, Oh, at least he's honest now. He doesn't yeah. care anymore. <laughs> he was always very honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. No, I think that's super solid advice. Uh, that, yeah, very useful. Uh, so, where can people find out more about you and the company?
4: You know, we just disbanded the company I've had, and it's so much stress. You know, who can really in this modern
3: world? And well, I can spend all that time on your computer talking to other people.
4: Perfect. <laughs> my dream come true.
3: I'm just going to do a lot of Plateau
4: Buster arm workouts back to back now with time. So uh, RenaissancePeriodization.com Because it's impossible to spell, you can just go on Instagram at RP Strength. <laughs> much easier. Hit the link and go straight to the website. And our Instagram's got cool stuff on it. My own Instagram is rpdrmike, R-P-D-R-M-I-K-E. It's pretty boring. My ability to take pictures of my food is that of a you know, four-year-old child. Uh, it's terrible. I get a lot of feedback. So if you want to make fun of really crappy food, again, I'll take a picture of a steak, and it looks like a piece of poop, and that's uh, just generally what you get on my Instagram. But there's a couple of informative posts around. Again, my Facebook, Mike is called Facebook. It's a public account. I do post quite a bit more information on there. And, uh, that's sort of the primary places to, to find me and, um, come, you know, follow me, troll me and we'll have a good time.
3: Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you being on here. Thank yeah, you thank so much. You.
4: Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's an honor.
0: Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are 3 halls in the store: 1 for Phil, 1 for Fortress, and 1 for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store.